Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. A lot is happening right now. We're in the middle of trying to reopen college campuses in the middle of a pandemic. National leaders of fraternities and sororities are holding their breath, hoping for in-person fall semesters, new members, and an eventual return to normal. Campus leaders are trying to plan virtual recruitment and completely reimagine what the traditional face-to-face college campus experience feels like. Our country is experiencing a racial reckoning in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, which is causing traditionally white fraternities and sororities to look inward and examine their own practices and structures which promote exclusion and racial discrimination. In the midst of all these challenges comes the Abolish Greek Life movement. On about 25 college campuses, groups of IFC and Panhellenic fraternity and sorority members are resigning their membership and pressuring their peers to do the same. The stated reasons for abolishing Greek life are many, but they center around the historical context of traditionally white fraternities and sororities as bastions of exclusion, racism, and privilege. As we seek to make the IFC and Panhellenic fraternity and sorority experience more inclusive for everyone, we need to grapple with that history. We need to understand how our organizations were founded, why they were founded, the context of our founding, and the policies and practices that span decades that have created environments that are not inclusive or welcoming to members from diverse backgrounds. So, I decided to talk to a historian who has done just that. Nicholas Syrett is a professor of gender studies at the University of Kansas and the author of The Company He Keeps, A History of White College Fraternities. Published in 2009, his book offers an in-depth examination of the founding and proliferation of the white college fraternity, with a particular focus on the way that college fraternities define traditional masculinity on college campuses. He is one of the leading experts in this area, and I'm thrilled to welcome him to the podcast today. All right, Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you? I'm great. Uh, really excited to to have you on. Uh, been a big fan of your work. Read your book when it came out in, in 2009. Cited it a few times in, in my dissertation and, and really excited to, to have a chance to talk to you. So welcome. Welcome to the podcast. You don't want to start. You're, you're a professor of gender studies. Um, what sparks your interest in diving into the particulars of the history of, of white college fraternities? Well, so I I am a professor of gender studies, and I'm also basically trained as a historian. And so I'm interested in the history of gender and sexuality, um, largely as they play out in the United States. And I was interested, particularly, this originated as my doctoral dissertation. Um, And I was interested in looking at the history of masculinity, in part because one thing that troubled me in the, the world in which I was living at the time, which was the early 2000s, was incidents of men in groups being violent uh, toward women, but not just toward women. So I, I basically, I needed a case study and I didn't know much about fraternities at all at the time. I had gone to an undergrad institution that had fraternities, but they were not a big part of uh, the undergrad life there. Um, and so I was looking around like what kind of organization would work. It could be the army, it could be sports teams, it could be fraternities or something else, but it needed to have an archive. If I'm a historian, I need to be able to find documents. And I also wanted to write about something that no one else had written about yet because 
why would you redo the, the work of other people? So I ended up with fraternities in part because no one had written about their history, at least through a gender lens. Um, and they have a plentiful archive all across the country at college and university, colleges and universities. So that was sort of a way to get at the questions I was after. Did, did you, were you able to access archival material just through colleges and universities? Did you have national organizations that were willing to partner with you? Like what did that actual archiving process look like for you in, in writing the book? Yeah, so I started, I went to grad school at the University of Michigan and I started by looking at the archives there when I, while I was still doing my classes and wrote a paper there. And then I just sort of looked around um, uh, at archives across the country. I wanted to find a, a variety of different kinds of institutions. So small colleges, big universities, some public, some private, a couple different areas. So I wanted the South, the West, the Northeast and so forth. Um, I did reach out to a couple fraternities themselves um, and did not hear back from them. So there are lots of like individual chapters records end up in colleges and universities, either if the chapters go under or if the chapter just is not interested in preserving the records themselves. But it's no great shock that like the national organizations are not, do not necessarily want uh, outside researchers coming in and looking at things. Not eager um, to air the laundry. <laughs> no, there were one or two like the, Papers of Delta Upsilon, which is a non-secret society, they're at the New York Public Library, so I yep. could look at those there. And then there's one or two that have, um, there's an enormously, like really deep rich of resources uh, or deep uh, sort of vein of resources at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, because they have the mm -hmm. Student Life and Culture Archives. Mm -hmm. So I could go there and look at some of the fraternity papers there as well. I, I also noticed there's a lot of information in the book from uh, Deke, Delta Kappa Epsilon. Uh, was that just by coincidence or were you able to access uh, some specific source material related to, to that organization? Mostly it's coincidence. But I think it's also that it's one of the oldest ones. And sure. so there are just lots of, um, lots of schools that have at least something related to them. They're also, their papers at the University of Michigan were some of the first that I looked at. And so mm -hmm. for the 19th century in particular, I think the, the Deke stuff is really rich. But Yale has some stuff left over from them as well. It, basically coincidence, but I think that the age of the organization probably contributed to it. The, well. the, the very infamous Yale Deke chapter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> infamous for a number <laughs> of reasons. So yeah. you use the word brotherhood a lot in the book. Uh, without ever really defining that term uh, yes. for the reader. As you know, we study brotherhood, and that's something that's really at the center of the research that we do at, at Dyad Strategies. So we, how do you think the founders and, and the early members of these white fraternities conceptualized brotherhood? What do you think that word meant to them, and how do you think the concept of brotherhood has evolved over time? It's a great question. And you're right that I don't really define it in part because even when you're reading the sources, they don't really define it a lot of the time. Um, so I think that the, the reason that they, they use the term brotherhood is that they wanted to say that the, the bonds that they shared with one another were something other than or more than friendship itself. Um, and so they looked to the, the relationships that they knew already, which were familial relationships. And so mm -hmm. it made sense to say that they were brothers to one another. They also, they carried this out to say that 
chapter, two different chapters of a national organization. We're sister chapters to one another. The original chapter, the alpha was the mother chapter. And then like Union College sometimes gets called the mother of all fraternities because it, they were founded there and so forth. So I think initially it's about like an analogy that's meant to express the importance of something. But I also think that it's stuck because it's meant to say also that this is a bond that is for life. So it doesn't end when you graduate from college. It, you know, you remain a brother with the people you were brothers with and with anyone else in that organization as well. Unlike a friendship, which, you know, can end, it doesn't have to, um, but we understand that friendship can be impermanent and they wanted to insist on the permanence of this. So that I think was sort of the idea behind why brotherhood works. And I think it probably accounts for why it's stuck as well. And also just this notion that you're insisting that this is something other than what friendship is or more than what friendship is, even though I don't, you know, I was never a brother myself aside from like a biological brother. I have one, so I am a brother to someone, but not of <laughs> this variety. Um, but I think it works for those reasons. And I think it also, one of the things it's meant moving forward is that there's an insistence on loyalty to brotherhood and that 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 kind of loyalty gets brought up a lot as if that you'd be more loyal to a brother than you would to just, to just a friend. Say. That, that's probably in our research, the, the, the definition of brotherhood that's the most salient in terms of when you talk to fraternity members and you ask them, well, what, what is brotherhood? What does that word mean to you? Uh, in our research, you know, we grounded in a lot of uh, Durkheim's work in solidarity that that's, that's what it is, right? It's just this idea that, we're, we're loyal to one another. We're there for one another. If my brother needs me, I'm going to be there for him. And I put the interests of the quote unquote brotherhood above my own interests. Right. So there's some altruistic reciprocity there in terms of the things we do for one another, but it's grounded in that concept of, yeah, being there for one another in, in times of need. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and, I, and I'm just curious, did you, did you look at all, I, I don't recall it in the book, but in your research, did you look at any of the connections between those early white college fraternities and, and Freemasonry, uh, knowing that, that uh, Freemasonry was a big inspiration for the, for the college fraternity movement, and a lot of the symbols and rituals in college fraternities are really, in some cases, derived, and in other cases, directly ripped yeah. off of, of, of Masonic emblems and, and ritual and lore. Yeah, so in the 19th century, I mean, there were not just the Freemasons, but any other, like so many different sort of men's fraternal orders. So it's clear to me, I didn't do a lot of the comparative stuff, but it's clear to me that like young men away at college would have known about these kinds of orders um, in their hometowns, their fathers were in them. And it really, I, I don't recall now the percentage, but an extraordinarily high percentage of men were in fraternal orders at that time, certainly by comparison to now, when those sorts of orders are not, for adult people at least, are not as popular as they once were. So I think the, the notion of having the initiation rituals, all that sort of stuff is largely probably due to, uh, to fraternal orders just because they were so prevalent at the time. Awesome. One of the concepts that comes up a lot in your book, and it's even embedded within the title, is the notion that fraternity membership has historically been associated with notions of social status and social prestige. Uh, what impact has the focus on social status had on the fraternity experience, and, and how has that evolved over time? 
So from their earliest moments, fraternities were exclusive by definition. Not everyone got to join just because they wanted to. Um, and the criteria for who was eligible or who was seen as a desirable member have changed over time. But I think one of the things that's curious about fraternities is that both they are exclusive and then also the membership criteria are a bit nebulous. They're kind of fuzzy. So like if you look at other campus organizations, like anyone can join an organization based on religious faith. In theory, you practice that faith and that's why you want to be in it. Um, and only certain people can join sports teams, but we all know that the reason you get on those teams is because in theory, you're capable of playing that sport. And so, <laughs> Like the fraternity is different in that you need to be either a, a man for a fraternity, a woman for a sorority. But um, what's changed over time, I think, is like what in addition to that is is the emphasis of that moment. And so in the antebellum era, when they were founded in the 1820s, most people who were invited to join fraternities were interested in or were willing to break the rules because fraternities were secret and barred organization. They weren't allowed to exist. So if you were joining one, you were risking your status. Um, and this meant also that in an era where most colleges or had a, a large population of men who were a little older, who were poorer and were training for the ministry, it was not those guys who joined the fraternity because they were there um, often sponsored by their towns to become ministers. And they believed that joining a fraternity was anti-religious in one way or another. And then the definition sort of, of what's desirable for membership changes in part to encompass social class and prestige, especially by the later 19th century, when before the like era of mass democratization of colleges, colleges themselves were basically just for rich students. Um, and so the fraternities were a way of sorting the even more exclusive away from what was already a fairly exclusive environment just by being in a college or a university in the first place. So I think the, the combination of just the exclusivity that's built into them um, then gets uh, sort of ex uh, exponentially more based around social class, depending on the era. Um, in, in this case, the 19th century being the most sort of crucial there. And, and how did that impact the experience itself, in your opinion? This focus on exclusivity and social prestige um, how did that impact the actual experience of being in a fraternity and the, the impact that fraternities had on the campuses where they were, where they were housed? Yeah, so I think, I mean, it, certainly the emphasis on social prestige for the people who are in the organizations is beneficial to them in one way or another. I mean, they get to feel like they're the sort of kings of campus. Um, and certainly in the later 19th century and early 20th century, they, this is an era when many of these sort of big, glorious fraternity homes were built. So it, it was on the money of alumni and sometimes people in the fraternities themselves. So it's obviously these are nice places to live, at least at the time before some of them, you know, got a little more destroyed on the inside. So it, it's a luxurious existence uh, for some fraternity men in this era. I think that the downside of that is that some of the good things in theory about college life are just not available to everyone. And so if fraternities are enrolling all of the more sort of socially prestigious, uh, charismatic people, and then barring the other people, then the full college experience is only available to some people and not everyone. Um, and it was the case also that fraternities didn't just exclude from 
membership, but they also would enter into these pacts where they would control like all of student government or all of the membership in this organization or that organization in order to concentrate that prestige. And that was clearly not great for people who were locked out of the organization. The machine at Alabama, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting in that one of, one of the things that we measure in our research is a thing we call social status importance. And, and what, what, what it measures is not the level of social prestige your chapter has. It, what we measure is how much you care about oh. your chapter's place in the social pecking order. And, and what we found, a couple of interesting things. One is that it's a predictor of a lot of problematic things, right? So the more you care about your chapter's prestige and place in that kind of campus social hierarchy uh, associated with more problematic social cultures related to alcohol use, more problematic attitudes around hazing, uh, yeah. uh, uh, unethical behavior just generally. So this idea that we will do things we know to be wrong or bad uh, in order to advance our chapter's social clout. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting concept in that way. The other thing we've learned, and, I, and I'm especially curious to get your, your, your reaction to this, is that when you, when you model it, right, and we've got these huge national data sets, and so we've done some multi-level modeling, what we found, you know, different things that we measure, you see more variance at the individual level or at the chapter level or at the campus level. And what we found is that Today, at least, and I, I want to get the historical perspective on this, but that today, the most variance on that social status importance is explained at the campus level. There are campuses where it matters a lot, and there are other campuses where it's just not an important thing at all, that the students, yeah. it's not about social prestige at all. Um, and the places where it tends to matter most are those places like Alabama, where you've got really old chapters, a really old community, and so it's rooted in uh, that culture, right? That started in some cases, you know, nearly 200 years ago, and you see that now. Whereas if you go to a place like Middle Tennessee State, right, which you know, only had a Greek community starting in the late 1970s, they don't really care about it that much. There, there's still yeah. a hierarchy and a pecking order, but it's much less important to the people who are part of the community. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, one of the things I was struck by when doing this research was the degree to which even from the very get, like the outset, uh, you know, the first couple years of fraternities existing on any campus, they were automatically in competition with each other. But like for what exactly was never clear. I mean, in right. some sense it was like for the best new members, but it is perfectly conceivable to think of organizations which are really about brotherhood and camaraderie and fun and breaking rules or whatever, existing without needing to be better than the other so it's clear that like it was built into for some of these organizations the very purpose like it wasn't just that you got to hang out with your friends who are now your brothers it's that your brothers were better than the other brothers yeah. and that, that was part of the reason for doing this in the first place that's um, that's fascinating to me and i'm trying to remember the citation but when we were writing the brotherhood research i was you know down in the the durkheim uh, wormhole right you know solidarity and and all the sociology literature that i'd never yeah. studied before um, and, and, and one of the things that I found that really rang true to me, and this was not a study of fraternities, but just groups in general, sociological research, that basically said that when a group starts, any sort of group, this group is formed, and, and for a while, the solidarity is formed as a response to the group either 
responding to external pressure or just pursuing their mission, right? So we, firm a, we form a fraternity and we do it because we're interested in getting together and talking about, you know, whatever, right? You know, however they were when they started. And then the solidarity started to form around these external forces who didn't want us to exist. And so we build this notion of solidarity, this brotherhood of us versus them. Uh, but then eventually either that initial mission or those external pressures fade away and then solidarity becomes the end unto itself that the reason for our purpose is now the creation and maintenance of this solidarity that that solidarity starts Mm -hmm. as a response but ends up becoming the reason for the group's existence and 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 I just found that fascinating and it resonated so much with me in terms of the qualitative research we were doing that when I was you know pressing guys on solidarity and and why that was so important in terms of their brotherhood. Like what was the solidarity for? And it was just like, it's its own thing, right? Like that's the reason we're here. That really resonated with me. Yeah. I'm not shocked by like, I've taught at a couple different schools that have varying levels of sort of Greek systems. And it, it does strike me that at some, you know, they're aware of the pecking order, but the ones that are much more recent where it's not established are also the schools that don't attract sort of wealthier people who have connections to particular fraternities in the first place. So it may be that at some of the schools, particularly flagship institutions in each state, you get people who are there in part because of the prestige of that institution because their fathers and their grandfathers and so forth also went there and they're gonna be more invested in it. But also the fraternities have a much more storied history at those places. And so there's much more to draw on than there is at a school that, as you said, only got them in the 1970s or something. Yeah, and we've seen that correlation as well, just in terms of parental income being a predictor of social status importance and some of those other yeah. more problematic things. It's very much like the um, like the country club mentality, right? Like yeah, I come sure. to college and I've got resources and I can pay the money to be in this really exclusive group. Fraternities are a lot more egalitarian now than they used to be just because even at a place like Alabama, you know, through the growth and proliferation of the number of chapters that are there, just about anyone who wants to yeah. be in a fraternity can find one, which is how you see that social pecking order kind of get established, right? That you've sure. got very exclusive groups still that you have to have the right pedigree and have gone to the right high school and your parents have to have the right job. But you've also got groups that, Hey, we're, we're just looking to have a great experience and it may or may yeah. not be altruistic in terms of why they're there, but certainly they're, they're less concerned initially with that notion of social status. And, and, and the other thing that we've, we've seen now as we've done this research over time is that that measure of social status importance will be the kind of canary in the coal mine, right? With those new groups, when they start caring a lot more about their place in the pecking order, they start looking around and they're like, oh, we want to be more like them, right? And that's when you start to see some of the problematic behaviors start to emerge. That's really the, the precursor to a lot of that. Hmm. One of the common threads in your book is what you call fraternal masculinity, which you know, I think really gets to what you were studying. You're looking at the history of fraternities through the lens of, of, uh, of masculinity how do you define that term fraternal masculinity and, and how do notions of fraternal masculinity connect to some of those notions of fraternal brotherhood that we talked about? 
So, I mean, really fraternal masculinity is just a catch-all for saying like, what is it that fraternity men value or how do they behave or act at any given time? And so there is no one version. And really, I think, especially as you noted a second ago, as you know, like, there are different kinds of fraternities now. So I think that there are probably more than one version of fraternal masculinity at the time. There were moments where it was a little more uniform. So to give one example of like a real contrast, I think is like when you look at antebellum fraternities, they would not have valued athleticism or being on a sports team or any of those things because sports didn't really exist at colleges at that moment. And so men didn't define themselves via that kind of strength or athletic prowess, whereas now that would be a part, really beginning in the later 19th century, that would be a part of like fraternal masculinity. But I also would say that I don't think that fraternal masculinity is always so starkly different from what's seen as archetypal masculinity more generally. So there are lots of people on college campuses who have the same attributes of fraternity men and are seen as being just as masculine as they are, they don't happen to belong. So there's no strict dividing line between what is fraternal and what is not. Um, I think though that fraternities, for in many eras in US history, fraternities have been seen as like the most sort of hegemonic or archetypal version of masculinity on a college campus. And they've been influential and they've been looked up to and they have set standards for what masculinity looks like for other students as well, even though they're not the exclusive sort of holders of that masculinity. And they're often like reacting to other cultural things that are going on too. That is like fraternities didn't invent athletics, but they certainly latched onto them as a way of measuring masculinity. Oh, and then the relation to brotherhood. I think, I mean, I think that brotherhood is in some ways a way for fraternity men to express like loyalty and affection to one another in a way that is still masculine. So if people are worried about preservation of masculinity, but in an organization that celebrates this togetherness, then brotherhood is a way of talking about it that doesn't compromise it in part just because affection and intimacy are coded as feminine in the world we live in and fraternities don't want that to be the case. So I think that's partially how brotherhood comes into it. I would say also that fraternal masculinity just also has a lot to do with the exclusivity. That is the most masculine in a particular kind of way. Those are the ones that everyone wants to be brothers in their fraternity if we're talking about like a, you know, an incoming class of freshmen or something. Like that. It's fascinating. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the difference between, and, and sometimes students get really confused, um, not all, but some that, that really think of brotherhood solely through the lens of solidarity. One of the other schema is what we call brotherhood based on belonging. And that's this idea that this is a place where I matter. This is a place where I feel connected. I have deep, meaningful relationships with the people in this group. And my thought is that groups that look at fraternity through that lens of a more traditional masculinity tend to think about the closeness through the lens of solidarity, right? We're there for each other. We've got each other's back. If you need me, I'll be there for you. But that doesn't necessarily lead to closeness in terms of depth and meaning of relationship, right? It's like, mm -hmm. Hey, I'm there for you. I got your back. We maybe we party together, but like, there's maybe not as much depth to the relationship beyond that. Whereas the fraternities who are not looking at this through that more traditionally masculine lens really are able to focus more on 
the intimacy of relationships that lead to that deeper sense of belonging, which we find is a better predictor of commitment and identification and attachment. Solidarity predicts those things, but not nearly as well right. as that deeper sense of belonging does. Right. So in the end, like the things that are best for the fraternity and its longevity are the things that are more about the belonging. That does not surprise me. Yeah, for sure. So connected to our research, some of the things, uh, Adam McCready, who's uh, one of our research associates, has been studying uh, masculinity. Uh, he's used the, um, uh, the HMNI, the Heteromasculine Norms Inventory, uh, developed by someone at Boston College. So we use that measure um, with uh, some of our fraternity populations. And what he's found, uh, it, it, in addition to a number of interesting relationships, but he's found a really strong relationship between certain aspects of hazing, uh, particularly hazing motivated by social dominance, reinforcing the hierarchy within the group. I'm up yeah. here, you're down here, I have yeah. power, I can make you do things. That, that is strongly connected to this aspect of masculinity that in that research is called heterosexual presentation or this, I'm overly concerned with appearing to be straight or appearing to be not gay. Um, and, and, and these are really, really strongly connected. You don't get a lot into hazing in your research, although you, you yeah. certainly touch on it, but did you uncover examples of, of this, any connections between hazing and that fraternal masculinity, you know, that, that you talk about in, in a historical sense? Yeah. So I'm not totally sure that I can address the like the dominance aspect because I don't think I know as much about that. And I just also don't know nearly as much about like the contemporary stuff as I do the historical. But um, I can talk a little bit about the relationship to this, the heterosexual presentation and so forth and, and hazing. Um, and that's part of it is the interesting history that is so like when I mean, hazing had always been on college campuses, but it wasn't associated with fraternities. And it was only sort of post-Civil War that fraternities started to do it instead of just the sophomores doing it to the freshmen or whatever, which was the traditional way. Mm -hmm. um, um, and obviously the, the point of hazing, and this is like insights from anthropologists and so forth, is to bond people together and make them suffer and make them really desire to get into the group. But I think also, as you point out, it's the thing that the elders or the, the full members exact upon the, the people who are trying to get in. It's making them demonstrate that they really want it in some way. I think the difference is how hazing then happens. So initial hazing was usually like stuff that was physically dangerous, um, but not as humiliating. Mm -hmm. and, now there's a more emphasis on humiliation as a way of effective hazing, basically. And one of the things that happens really from, say, 1920s onward, but escalating by the 50s and 60s, is that the humiliation takes the form of, like, homoerotic stuff. Mm -hmm. And so the best way to humiliate a person in this logic is to make them act in ways that are gay, either through, like, nakedness or just doing things with one another that seem gay-ish in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that then, like, the more that fraternities embrace that version of hazing, the more incumbent upon some of them it seems to be to prove that they are not actually like that. That is, right. whether you go through the stuff or you're making people do those sorts of things, you have to preserve the reputation of the fraternity by making sure that no one thinks you're actually that way, which mostly is true. They aren't. They're just using it as a way of humiliating people. So I think some of this is like a problem of their own making. <laughs> if they just didn't insist on those kinds of hazing things, then there wouldn't be as much need to compensate, basically. 
Sure. And, and I wonder, you know, and again, you're a historian, but thinking about this through the, the, the lens of, of kind of the current fraternity experience and just anecdotally, I, I haven't researched this. There, there is some research out there in terms of openness to uh, men who identify as anything other than yeah. straight, that, that modern day fraternities certainly are much more open to homosexual men than even 10 years ago when you were writing the book, that, that there's been a big societal shift, especially with the generation that's in college now. Certainly, we don't see that across the board and, and on those campuses yeah. where social status is still really important and, and those, those top tier prestigious groups again, anecdotally, but they seem a lot less open to that. So there's still this notion that traditional masculinity is caught up in this notion of social prestige, and those groups are probably still less open to uh, homosexual men specifically. I, I, I think the relationship on the women's side with sororities is probably totally different, but certainly with the men's groups we see on certain campuses where this is important, that that not being open to that is still a marker of social exclusivity, whereas other yeah. groups are much more open to it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think, I mean, even if you look at the fraternities on, and again, some of this is anecdotal, but the fraternities on campus that are avowedly like, we are multicultural, or we are accepting of lots of different people, like those are not the prestigious ones. Those are the ones that everyone thinks, oh, he's in it because he couldn't get into the other ones in some way or another. Um, so there, I mean, there's lots of evidence for gay men and lesbians or people having same-sex experiences within fraternities and sororities, but generally undercover. And then they talk about it after they have left. So they're doing this with their brothers and sisters, but not in an open way. Um, but I think you're right that more and more organizations, just because societal attitudes towards homosexuality by younger people are different than older people, like there's just a lot more acceptance and reworking of what masculinity means. That said, I've also seen some research that's a little bit dated now, but done by sociologists probably like 10 to 15 years ago that found that even gay men in fraternities were still themselves, even though they're sort of breaking one of the rules of masculinity in that they're gay, they were very much wedded to the other ways of being masculine. That is, they were not flouting of gender conventions in any way. They were towing the line in all ways other than <laughs> um, being gay, basically. Yeah, keeping the company line. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that, you know, 20 years ago and everything before then that, you know, gay men were not in fraternities. And if they were, they weren't out. They weren't open about it. And, and, and so it wasn't a group specific marker of, of prestige. It was just part of the culture. And now um, maybe it's used as a marker of prestige, right? That those top tier or more socially elite groups again, on certain campuses, and this is not a yeah, blanket statement. Sure. This is probably more prevalent, and I'm probably injecting a little bit of my own bias, having worked primarily in the Southeast and being at you know, big state schools in the Southeastern Conference. I've seen it there that, again, those top-tier groups tend to be yeah. less open to diversity in general, and certainly specifically diversity around uh, sexual orientation. Yeah. Yeah, that does not surprise me. So another, another interesting argument that you make in the book is that fraternities have played an outsized role in defining masculinity in American society for both members and non-members, right? That the, the, the norms that they have established on the campuses in which they exist have defined masculinity for, for generations. 
explain that to our listeners and, and, and kind of where that, where that comes from in your mind. Yeah. So this is sort of a, if, if I think of most of my book as like a book of social history, that is what people are doing and what are the effects for real people of those experiences. This is really like a cultural history argument in one way. That is, I, the argument in essence is that the representation of the fraternity man was really predominant at certain moments in history. The 1920s is one of those moments. And I would say like the 1950s a little bit as well. So prevalent that it came to sort of symbolize what it was to be in college in the first place. And in some mm -hmm. ways, the sorority woman for, for women did the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think also, especially in the 1920s, which was the era, sort of the birth of real youth culture in the United States, the, the image of the fraternity man had an impact beyond simply colleges as well. So college students at the time used to complain that, you know, non-college students could look the part by like buying the right clothes and using the right lingo and that sort of thing um, because college was so celebrated at that moment and the fraternity man no more celebrated no celebrated no more than anyone else i mean the fraternity man was sort of the apex of what it was to be a college student so that's mostly what i mean is that that in certain moments fraternities came to symbolize the college experience or maybe like american youth more generally and then what they did was what other people wanted to emulate. The other way I think you could trace this, and I have not done this research, but it would be to look, this is like a long-term study, to look at men in fraternities, women in sororities, or people in any group, and see like the values that they learned in their organization while they were in college, and then does that have an effect beyond it? So fraternities and sororities love to talk about the placement of their members in say Fortune 500 companies or in Congress or something like that. But the, the question then becomes, does the, does the stuff that people learn in these organizations have an effect in their later lives as adults? My guess is yes, but that is a research project I have not undertaken. Yeah. Uh, but it would be again about the like outsized influence basically. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a fascinating thought. And there's, there's been some attempts to do some of that research to connect the undergraduate experience to the perceptions and the actions of, of folks once they're no longer in the in the organization, as you might imagine, it's really difficult research yeah. to do. You've got to yeah. get you know it's 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 easy to get a chapter president to make his member sit down and take a survey. It's a little harder to totally. track down those alumni and and get them to take you know thirty minutes for an interview or a, or yeah. a survey. But I, I agree with you. I think that would be fascinating research if someone were interested in doing that. We've built a big database of undergraduate data that it would be really easy to dig into and to track some of these people down now as they're out of school a few years and, and finding out how those experiences and beliefs and norms that they developed while they were in the fraternity now impact the way they interact with, yeah. with others, particularly in that, that, that lens of masculinity. That, that would be fascinating research. It's also, I think it gets at a question that I get asked a lot when I talk to reporters and I usually talk to reporters when like a fraternity has done something bad um, and reporters want to know like, well, what caused this? And it sort of comes down to this chicken or egg question that I don't think is really answerable, but it is, is it that people who want to do these kinds of things join fraternities or are people who join fraternities more likely to learn about whatever this behavior is in the fraternities? And I think the answer is sort of both. That is, obviously lots of people don't join fraternities or sororities, so they're attractive because of their reputation for a reason. But then there is a process of socialization within fraternities that makes people adapt to new norms that may change their behavior at that moment and then also down the road. So even 
if we were to be able to conduct this study that you and I are talking about, you might also have to conduct it with like a similarly inclined group of students as a control group who like don't join totally. fraternities, but do go on to probably similar sorts of jobs. I work with a college in New England. I've done some external investigations and other things up there. This is a campus that doesn't have fraternities and sororities. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a fascinating case study in all the different types of groups that these students who have these predispositions have formed and who do the exact same things, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about the, they have these very low athletic uh, sport groups. So like sailing teams, right? Sure. Ultimate Frisbee teams, acapella groups, right? Mm -hmm. So like all these groups that are formed for the purpose of, right, you know, whatever, you know, playing Frisbee or sailing or, or singing or whatever it might be. But if you strip that away and you look at how they actually function and operate, they don't look any, they're, they're, they're having parties, they're hazing their yeah. new members, they're, you know, their members are involved in sexual assault, right? Like it's all the yeah. stuff that we typically think of and associate with fraternities. And, you know, so there's a, yeah, it's, a, it, it, you know, an apple in the barrel or chicken in the egg, right? And, and yeah. To your point, yeah, it's the it's the Forrest Gump. It's well, you know, maybe maybe both things are happening at the same time, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, yeah. that is certainly is, what I believe. Yeah, there is some notion that the the barrel, the culture of these organizations promotes this behavior to some extent, but I think there's a really strong argument to be made, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that students who have these predispositions, even if you get rid of fraternities, are going to find one another. Uh, they're going to congregate together and they're going to find out ways to, to act those, those predilections mm -hmm. out. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating thought experiment. And, and it always strikes me as odd. And I, I, I'm like you, I talk to reporters a good bit. And usually when something bad has happened yeah. and it's, well, you know, why don't we just get rid of fraternities? And you never, <clears throat> you never hear that argument when there's a hazing incident with a, a sports team or a marching band. Why don't we just, you know, it's like fraternities are really easy to pick on for plenty of good reasons, right? Because of all mm -hmm. the, the, the problematic behavior. But we see those behaviors literally in every other facet of life. We're seeing a lot more hazing in, in the high school and even middle schools now, particularly with sports teams. Uh, a lot of that uh, heteronormative stuff that, that you talked about in particular showing up in, in younger and younger children. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating that, that I've always said it's a pretty Pollyannish way to think to say, oh, we'll get rid of fraternities and all of a sudden we're not going to have these problems. We won't have yeah. hazing or we won't have sexual assault. And it's like, no, that's, I don't think that's how this works. <clears throat> um, how does the manner in which fraternities recruit and socialize their new members contribute to some of these issues related to masculinity and social class that you talk about in your books? One of the episodes we're going to be getting into really deals with recruitment and, and how groups recruit in particular, and then how those new members are socialized, that has to play a huge role in the things that, that you've studied and talk about. Yeah, so I think there are two ways of thinking about it, at least. I mean, one related to social class, I think, for much of their history, and I think this is less true now, though I will admit I don't know much about like how much it costs to join a fraternity, and I understand that there are incredible variation sure. among them. But, you know, at certain moments in history, it was just not possible for some less wealthy students to join them. They were on scholarship, they barely had the money to be in college in the first place. And so it becomes a, like a, 
a vehicle for uh, sort of uh, the perpetuation of social class. That is, those who are in them get to continue to be in them and get all the connections that people in them get and the other people don't get them. And then I think in some cases, it's, it can be much almost more direct than that. That is like, you know, children of people who are in them get to be in them or people who know recruit from their high school or something like that. So it can be quite obvious, especially for the more prestigious ones. So that's the most sort of obvious like reproduction of class that's going on right there just uh, at the, the level of who specifically is asked to join. Mm -hmm. And then I think in terms of socialization, anytime that a person joins a new group, they're going to try to conform to some of the norms of that group. And that's true for anything else. I mean, this is the work of sociologists and anthropologists who tell us that we alter our behaviors if we seek acceptance by a new group. Um, but I think also the way that fraternities work through this period of rushing and pledging where like if you and I are becoming friends with one another, there's not like a deadline on when I'm gonna decide whether I, we keep each other or something like that. But fraternities do have this deadline. And so you've got to prove yourself within this certain amount of time by performing certain kinds of tasks or you're out. And that just really increases the pressure upon anyone to do the things that you are being asked to do. You are literally told you don't get to be a member if you don't do these things. And that's the obvious stuff, but I think at the, on the level of that it's less obvious, you're just watching everything around you and trying to conform to, um, to the way that people behave. So I've seen studies, again, these are probably a little dated by now, but uh, from when I was writing my book, that demonstrated that fraternity pledges were more likely to try to you know, have sex with women or coerce sex out of women simply because they thought that that's what the fraternity wanted them to do. And maybe they were told that explicitly and maybe they weren't, um, but they believed that that was what was supposed to happen. Um, so I think that it, certainly the, the process of pledging and socialization has consequences for what masculinity looks like on the other end. It, it, what, what you said reminds me so much of an experience I had. A chapter I was working with they um, they brought uh, immediately after recruitment the first chapter meeting so all the new members have have joined and they're you know starting this new member process and so they want to introduce them all to the chapter so they bring them in they line them up and they they you know it, you know twenty guys in front of a chapter of of you know a hundred and they say you know your name your hometown your major your favorite porn category. And the word, their, their word, not mine, your kill count, right? How many, how many yeah. people you've slept with? Yeah. And, and I'm just sitting there just like, A, I can't believe this is happening. B, I can't believe they're doing this in front of me, but I'm, I'm going to yeah. let this play out. So I just, I sit yeah. in the room and just kind of watch this thing happen. And it was fascinating. So like the first 10, 11 guys, you know, they're, they're saying funny stuff. And then, you know, when they get to their, their kill count, their number of sexual partners, they're throwing out these ridiculous numbers, right? Like this, this, you know, this pimple faced goofy kid from the middle of nowhere, Tennessee is like, Oh yeah, 14. I'm like, there's, there's no way this kid has slept with 14 people, right? Like no way, no how. And then finally, one of the young men says, uh, you know, he goes through this thing and he's like, guys, I want to be honest with you. My number zero. And everybody stood up and clapped. It was the strangest thing. Like they applauded him for being honest. And then after that, like two thirds of the guys also said that their number was zero. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, once yeah. someone had the courage to say the, the true number, then yeah. everyone else did as well. 
what fascinated me about that and the follow-up that I had with this group was imagine that that guy hadn't had the courage to say that. Yeah. And so you do this activity and everyone gives these inflated numbers, but now imagine that, that your number is actually zero and you lied, but you yeah. assume maybe you're the only person who lied yeah. and you're like, you know, my gosh, I'm the only person like, and, and my point to them was, that's rape culture. That's what people are talking about. Because now if I'm that guy and I feel pressure that in order to fit in, in order to be a real man amongst this group that I need to have a higher kill count. And I see a young lady at a party who's had too much to drink. Might I act in a predatory way because the pressure for me to hook up and get yeah. laid is now even hot. You know, it's bad enough. You know, you're an 18 year old kid with all these hormones raging and now you've got all this pressure that in order to be a man, in order to fit in, uh, and you wonder why we have some of the problems and challenges. And the, and the chapter president was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've never really thought of it that way. <laughs> it was, it was well, such a fascinating yeah. just to be able to sit in the room and observe yeah. that play out. I was just like, this is wild. This is absolutely Well, and wild. also just the way like that they in saying, all right, everyone has to say these four things about yourself. Like, obviously your name and your hometown are fairly obvious those are like but then the only if it was two but like it could be anything else literally anything that this this is the thing that is most important tells you an enormous amount about what it is that the organization values they could ask lots of other things and i get that like young men are not gonna or and you, you don't want to seem like super sappy by saying like i don't know what your favorite novel is or something like that. But there are lots of other identifying things about us. That funny are, things, that right? Are funny things, exactly. That totally. are important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. It, 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 it was a wild experience, but, but provided A, a good anecdote, but, totally. but B, a really good follow-up conversation with that group. And I hope they're, I hope they're no longer engaged in that practice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Your book is generally thought of as being critical of fraternities, right? And, and you and I were chatting earlier that, you know, initially, you know, a lot of the fraternity groups weren't really happy with your book. They thought it was, was overly critical. Um, are there aspects of the fraternity experience that, that you see as positive? Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, lots of people arrive at college knowing not many people, uh, especially people who go out of state or go to, you know, colleges where they, but their friends are not going there. And fraternities and sororities structure a way of making friends. And that's clearly of immense importance to people. I think if you were able to separate out the sort of exclusivity and that sort of thing from them, the fact of simply having a group of friends, you know, what's wrong with that? And I think that because they set up sort of a way of structuring social interaction, it, it's comforting to people who get to a new town and a college where they don't know that many people to have that, to be told this is how it's going to work. And on the end, other end of it, you're going to have friends and get that out of it. That's clearly of importance to people. They wouldn't have survived if they weren't doing that for people. And then obviously like for universities, they're so well entrenched at some schools that they are providing things that literally are not provided elsewhere. They provide housing to large numbers of people. Um, you know, you take some of the bad with that because fraternities aren't always behaving, but there are some universities that would not, there, there literally aren't enough beds in the town or certainly in the dormitories to be able to house the people who are housed in Greek letter housing. So that's obviously important. Um, and I think, 
you know, fraternities obviously provide connections to the people who join them that are useful, not just socially, but also in terms of, you know, business and professional life and so forth. I just wish that those were more equi equitably distributed. That is, it's not bad that those things exist. I just wish they weren't exclusive only to the people who could join the fraternities, that they were available to everyone in college, but they're clearly useful. So, so what's next for you? What's on your research agenda? What are, what are the things you're working on now? I am, so I moved on really from the topic of fraternities. Um, I think of myself as a historian of gender and sexuality. So I'm beginning to work on a book on a woman who was probably the most famous abortionist in 19th century America. Um, she began practicing, she lived in New York City, she was an immigrant, and she began practicing when abortion was legal. And over the course of her career, it became illegal, and she continued to practice nevertheless. And so I'm looking at her career. She was famous in her day, so there's a lot of reporting about her, but she also was uh, arrested multiple times, um, spent some time in jail. She's a colorful figure, but she's also interesting for looking at the history of the criminalization of abortion. Awesome. Well, his book is The Company He Keeps, A History of White College Fraternities. If, if you work with fraternities on college campuses and you've not read Nicholas's book, I highly recommend it. It is a really good read and particularly eye-opening and, and provides a lot of great context for what we see now on college campuses. Uh, Nicholas Syret, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So I hope this conversation with Nicholas was illuminating for you. It, it was certainly illuminating for me in helping me think through the historical challenges that have led us to our current place. We need to make improvements. We need to make sure that the traditionally white IFC and Panhellenic fraternity and sorority experience is more inclusive to people from all walks of life. And in order to do that, we really do have to look backwards to understand our history, to understand the context of how our organizations came to be and the policies and practices over the years that have led us to where we are. Nicholas's work really shines a light in some of those areas and I think really serves as a call for all organizations to look inward, examine your past, own the mistakes that have been made, and truly work towards a more inclusive future. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.